0: Let's <laughs> Welcome to Recovered1440.com cabin fever, episode eight. My name is Bobby and I'm an addict. This is a podcast for people who might be struggling with addiction, might not know what addiction is. People who might have started taking drugs or drinking recreationally and can't stop. Or when they do stop, they can't stay stopped. When I was deep in the madness, I didn't have a way out. I used to Google how to kill myself in the least painful way and how to beat drug addiction, and I was told it was gonna be an arduous battle for the rest of my life, and that is not the case. Me and my friends are extremely lucky. We've found a fellowship that's granted us a new way of life, and this podcast series is to show you that way of life, I'm joined today by a good friend of mine, someone that I admire, um, and whose story I would like you to hear. So with that in mind, I'll hand the meeting over to you, Stu, as it were. Lovely. Thank you very much, Bobby. Um, Yeah, it's lovely to be sitting here and and
1: being able to do a bit of service, and I'm very grateful and very privileged that you've asked me to be part of, of this podcast. And you know, when I look back at the start of the book and... When you look at the forward to the first edition, all the way through to the forward to the fourth edition, you know, as I understand it, they're going to be going to be writing a, a forward to the fifth edition. But the forward to the first edition says about how they communicated with people, and it was all done by letter and responding back to people individually by pen and paper. Mm-hmm. And you know, when this when this opportunity come about. You know, I would imagine that when the forward to the fifth edition comes about and is is written, I'll be interested to read that because there's so many different ways that we can get across the message of the the twelve step program. Mm-hmm. Um, means like like this, you know, like the like podcasts. You know, we have the Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, WhatsApp is a big part of of my unity with other fellows mm-hmm. um, within the fellowship. Um, social media plays a big part. So. I imagine there's going to be a lot written about that in the forward to the fifth edition when that comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's nice to be sitting here, a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, but I start my day off exactly the same. You know, I'm very consistent in what I do now and it's, it allows me to, to go through the day and manage it in the best way that I, I'm able to. You know we all get up in the mornings and it's, it's very easy to just get straight into those external things you know we mm-hmm. get up we'll have a shower you know if you're a guy you might have a shave bit of aftershave cup of tea have some breakfast if you're a lady you might sort of do your makeup do your hair have a look in the mirror just make sure that everything's matching um, and we do all these external things but but for me it's important for me to start my day internally mm-hmm. now if i have to get up at seven o'clock in the morning my alarm goes off at twenty past six mm. and the first thing i do in the morning to start my day internally to make sure that i'm ready for any of those external things that may come about is i reach for my phone and i open up my spiritual toolkit mm. and the first thing that i do is i'll read the on awakening reading because for me that's how i want to conduct my next 24 hours and it tells me how, how best to conduct my next 24 hours and then i i go to the uh, daily reflections reading and that's like a little advent calendar you know every day i I get excited I look, seeing what that is seeing what it is that i can read mm-hmm. and what they've they've put in on there for me then i do my meditation and then i do my prayers um and then by that time i'm ready to go and do those external things that i just mentioned i'll go and have a cup of tea and and get myself ready to go and start my day but if I don't start my day like that then I feel like I've missed something when I go out of my house so all through my recovery of coming in this time round, I've been very consistent in what I do you know someone said to me once um, about fear and, I, and I've had fear through the whole of my life but I didn't know what fear was and Sitting here, I'm feeling a little bit of fear. But when I got asked to do my first chair, I remember standing in the kitchen of the, the place where the meeting was for the 12-step program, and someone who is now my sponsor, he said to me, he said, how are you feeling? I said, oh, I'm really nervous. And my watch was reading, and I, and I exercise quite a lot, and I can go and get on the treadmill, and I can go and run at, say, 130 beats a minute, but I remember standing still, in the kitchen, because I had a tea commitment at this meeting. And I was standing there, and my heart was pounding so much. And I looked at my watch, and I was going at 141 beats a minute, because that was the type of fear that I had at that particular time. And, and through going, going through this work has allowed me to identify what my core fear is. But this guy said to me, he said, oh, he said, you know, fear, it can be, it can be a real challenge, can't it, huh? He said, it can be a mile wide and a mile high. And I'm thinking, yeah, he, he knows how I'm feeling. But then he hit me with a punchline and said to me, but it's only a millimeter thick. I love that. And that put me sort of a little <laughs> bit at ease. And, and this 12-step program has given me the courage to be able to push through that fear because I would never have pushed through that fear before. I would have always run away mm-hmm. from it. Mm-hmm. You know, how I look at myself now and what I've learned about myself through this 12-step program is that my core fear or one of my core fears is vulnerability. Mm. I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like being in a situation where someone can judge me. Mm. I worry so much about what people are gonna think of me and I don't like doing anything where I can be embarrassed. Mm. And that fear, I can now look at taking that back to my school days. You know, not long ago, within the last couple of years, I found out I'm dyslexic and We all like doing things, everyone likes doing things that they're good at and don't like doing things that they're not good at. But when I look back at my school days, whenever it came to something theory-based, that was my cue to muck around. If they said, Stuart, start reading from the next paragraph, I would do whatever I could to be disruptive and get kicked out of the class. I would sooner be the class clown and miss the lesson and stand out in the corridor than people think I was stupid. And I wouldn't want to read because I had that fear of worrying about what people thought of me and what people, how I come across and, and being embarrassed. You know, my wife said to me, why didn't you ever say that to the teacher? Because back when I was at school, the answer to the teacher would have, the answer from the teacher would have been, right, Stuart, read the next two paragraphs because you oh, need to practice. Right. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't good at reading, I never wanted to practice it. I didn't have the the patience to do it because I... I didn't like it because I wasn't any good at it. Mm-hmm. And as I say, that fear's carried, I've carried that fear through the whole of my life. You know, I always thought that fear was watching a horror film or being chased mm-hmm. by someone. I yeah. didn't realise how many other fears there are. You know, apparently, we're only born with two fears, the fear of noise and the fear of falling. But the rest, are all they all grow throughout, throughout our life. And... It's taken me a long time to get to this stage in life and in my recovery. You know, 16 years ago, I first came into these rooms and got introduced and had the seed planted about the 12-step program. But I didn't get it because I didn't get the total abstinence. I come in these rooms with a cocaine problem, Mm. and I didn't think that anything else was a problem. I then had had another go first time when I come in I, I wasn't prepared to stop smoking weed and they told me I, I was an alcoholic and I'd never really liked drink, drink was never really my thing mm. but to be told I was an alcoholic was enough for me to go back out there and prove, I don't know who I wanted to prove to but because I didn't want that label and I had that perception of an alcoholic I went back out there and I dry sniffed for, for a good few years until in the end the the drinking become to a level where I was drinking with alcoholic tendencies. Mm-hmm. And i come back in the rooms, probably about 10, 11 years ago from now, a few years after I come in the first time round, prepared to give up drinking and to give up um, sniffing. But I didn't want to give up smoking weed. Mm-hmm. But then when I've come in this time round, it's been completely different. You know, I've realised what this program is all about. It's not just getting you off the drink and drugs. For me, it's rebuilt me from the inside out. Mm. Um, it's not only removed that obsession. You know, I've got a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of. My morals have all changed. The way I treat people, uh, and everything has become a lot better as a result of it. But when I come in the meetings this time round, I was still riddled with that fear of being judged, and. The thought of picking up one of those readings in the meetings could have almost stopped me going to the meetings. But when I heard it, heard what I heard in the meetings this time round, I heard it with complete different ears. And I knew that I wanted it because I was so broken with a spiritual malady. I, I you know I was I didn't have any spiritual malady inside. I was I was so broken when I didn't know how to live, but I wanted what people had that I was meeting in the rooms. I wanted it this time round, which was a complete different way to me looking at it when I come in the first two times. And to help me get over that fear, I ended up printing off all of them readings. I used to sweat at the thought of picking up a reading because of a fear of being judged. And I used to either pass them to someone else or I would even think twice about going to a meeting unless I knew it was gonna be busy. And that way I'd know someone else wow. would be doing the readings. Mm-hmm. But well, what i had done to overcome that fear was I printed all of them readings. I went onto the 12-step the uh, fellowship website and I printed all of them readings off. And I practiced them. They're, they're sitting in my bedside cabinet still. And I practiced them over and over again because I wanted to engage in the meetings. And that was, that was what helped me stay in the meetings, being able to pick up a reading. And then when it comes to sharing, back after someone had done their chair... I used to sit there and, and think so deeply about what I wanted to share. I never had a problem in thinking about something to share because I always find, and even now, if someone's done a chair and it's not based on what my experience was, I can still find similarities mm. because I suffer with that disease of addiction. Mm. So whether it be the powerless, powerlessness, the progression, I can find similarities in, in what they've shared about. And I would sometimes want to share rehearse it so much in my head, worry so much about remembering it, worrying about what people was going to think of how I've shared, that I would miss the opportunities and then the meeting would be over. Mm. And I'd go away from that meeting frustrated that I didn't have the confidence to share, I didn't have the courage to share. So eventually i developed the, the courage through continually going to the meetings and learnt to open my mouth and I learnt mm. to just pick out one thing that, that I could relate to and that would be what I would start sharing on and then the sharing became a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident as time went on and I felt as if I was becoming part of this fellowship. But I still used to sit there and think to myself there's no way you're ever going to get me sitting up there doing a yeah. chair. <laughs> I would sooner relapse before sitting up like there, you know, it was pain, painful when I was in active addiction and painful when I was trying to work this out myself. Mm. But the thought and the fear of sitting up there and doing a chair, like I'm able to sit here now and talk about my experience, riddled me with fear. Mm. And you know the courage that I've got from this fellowship and the support from the people that I've got around me. And I remember you always saying to me, Bobby, you know, when I did have the confidence to share, I always remember you, you sort of, making me feel comfortable afterwards now, lovely to hear you, really nice to hear you speak. And that filled me with a lot of confidence. So I owe to you a lot in allowing me to develop my confidence and courage in being able to be more involved in the meetings. Um, But yeah, going back to my school days, you know, I had many friends at school. You know, I was always a middle of the road person. I could mix with everybody. You know, I, I never, I always stuck up for the people that were being bullied. I didn't like to see people being bullied, but I could get on with, with the in kids. I could get on with the, the not so in kids. Mm. And I just I just got on with everyone because I, I wasn't a troublemaker at school. I just fitted in and, and liked getting on with people. But I always grew up without fear. Mm. I left school at the age of 15. Um, when I was 12, I started work. you know I left school I left school with two qualifications. I left school with woodwork, cookery, common sense, I'd like to think a <laughs> of common sense, and um, work ethic. Mm. because at the age of 12, I started working. I always wanted a motorbike as a kid, but I wasn't allowed one. So I ended up getting a job at the local golf range, and I used to pick balls up every morning before school, I'd go to work come home, get ready for school, and then go to school. Every evening after school, I used to work at the driving range, serving the balls out to the customers. On a Sunday, I used to pick the balls up in the morning, and then I used to have my own car washing business after that. So I used to go around knocking on people's doors. This was before car washes were as readily available as they are now, but I used to go around knocking on people's doors with my bucket and sponge. Do you want your car washed? And I had regular customers that I used to do every week or every other week. And then on the Saturday morning, I used to do a milk round. I used to get <laughs> up, meet the milkman at 5 o'clock in the morning. And then in between all of that, I used to have a free paper round as well. So I've never, ever been shy of work. Oh, and at the age of 14, I was already playing golfer at the age of 14. So the golf range that I worked at, they saw my interest in golf and, and um Saw, he must have seen some sort of potential there and certainly saw my work ethic and they said to me you know when when you leave school if you want a career in golf there's a job here for you mm. so being told that at the age of 14 I thought to myself that's great you know I can skip the last part of school because in my head I was thinking to myself you go to school to get a job to buy a house to have a family and live happily mm. ever after and that was how I thought the progression of life was so being told at the age of 14 I've already you know, I've got a job for when I leave school. I don't really have to worry about exams and that, so, and I didn't get ent- entered in for, for many exams. As I say, I only come out with woodwork and cookery, but being too practical too, too practical exams, I quite enjoyed those. Mm. I think I was ungraded and not entered for, for many of the other ones. And I can't ever remember doing homework, probably because I was out working all the time. But because I was gonna work in a professional industry, you know, I was working and mixing with professional sports people and professional people. I had this image that I wanted to project, you know, I had, a, had an image of how I wanted people to see me. So going to pubs and smoking cigarettes wasn't ever part of the image that I wanted to project. Plus as well, every time I did go to the pub, you know, I'd, I'd drink with a purpose of getting drunk and I'd get terrible hangovers. Mm. So that was never really anything. I didn't want to be seen walking around the streets with a cigarette, and I didn't want to be seen sort of in the pubs all the time. So that wasn't really my thing. But at the age of 16, with some of my schoolmates, you know, I could roll a joint before I smoked it, (laughs) because probably it's because I wanted to fit in. And then when I did start smoking, you know, it was a bit solid then, you know. That was all right, because I was fitting in with people, and then I had three big circles of friends i had a circle of friends that i went to school with i had a circle of friends that i played golf with and i had a circle of friends from my girlfriend who's now my wife from from her school Mm. because i've been with her sort of from from early on and um in every group they all puffed so i could puff with all of them and i didn't mind being a puffhead Mm. because it sort of it was done in sort of in secret so it wasn't being out there and People wasn't seeing me other than the people that I puffed with, mm-hmm. so I puffed from the age of sixteen right through to the age of forty-eight. You know, so I, I and probably every day, there wasn't a day that I went without a joint. Mm-hmm. So, all through them years, there hasn't been a day gone by where I haven't taken something to change the way that I feel. Mm-hmm. But because I wasn't a pub person, the rave scene come around, and I used to love going out, doing pills on a weekend, but even when I was doing pills, when I took a pill, I'd always have that little bit of worry, what if I die? Mm. Now I've taken it, there's no more. nothing I can do, it's in my system. Mm. But once I come up, that's it, I knew it was working. And as soon as I started to come down, I wanted to get back up mm. again, so I'd have another one. Mm. And it got to the stage, and this is back in the, back in the 90s when pills were good, you know I was, my pill taking then sometimes will get up into double figures and you know i would get buckled on pills but it was only a weekend thing mm. still puffing all through the week but the pills were a weekend thing and there was a good crowd of us that went out raving and i loved it i loved them days and i'll i don't regret those days mm. but what they did do is they probably led me in to the stage when cocaine came along and this is 30 years ago now, mm. 30 years ago when I first, when I was 20, about, about when I was 20, that I had my first line. And my thinking behind that was if I use cocaine, I can control the level of my buzz in smaller mm. increments. Mm. I thought I don't have to hang on when I'm coming up. Mm. I can just chip away at it and, and control it in a, in a more civil way. You know, plus as well, back then, I saw it as a bit of a classy drug. Mm. You know, the celebrities, the superstars, the rich, the famous, all the city workers, they're the ones that done it. Mm. So I didn't see it as a dirty drug. I saw it as a classy drug. Mm. But for me, what what happened was, Fridays and Saturday nights would be getting a bit of gear, chipping away at it, but the progression went very quickly. Mm. Because what was a Friday, Saturday night, very quickly become a a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Which very quickly become a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday night, and then before I knew it, it was every day of the week. Now it wouldn't be that I'd smash myself to pieces with it, but I always felt comfort having it on me. Mm. Because I always had it there, it was almost like a bit of a comfort blanket. Mm. And I look back at my using, and my using I divide up into three stages. The first part of my using, I don't regret. I look back and I had some great times. I've got some great memories. I was the first one out, the last one to leave. You know, I could talk all night. And and it was really fun. And when people say about when did you cross the line, I suppose I crossed the line in the middle part of my using and when I section it into the three parts. The middle part of my using, my mates would be going out on a weekend, but I'd been using every day through the week. And I'm tired when I go out on the weekend and they're all full of life to, to go out on the weekend. And I would go out and I I couldn't wait to start sniffing. Mm. Drinking still wasn't my my sort of flavour, if you like. But I used to drink to sort of get myself going and then I'd sniff to sober myself up. <laughs> and then I'd sniff too much that I couldn't speak. So then I'd drink faster to try and get my voice back. And in the end... The night was just batting off, batting the two off, off with each other, Mm. drinking more to be able to speak, sniffing more to be able to get that buzz, forgetting that I couldn't speak a little while ago, and then, very early into the night, I'm already uncomfortable. When I when I used to go out, I used to all you know because I never used to see myself as selfish, which I know that I'm very selfish. When I when I let it come into me, it's one of my defects. And I used to go out with, I used to buy an eight for gear, but because, you know, it used to come in sort of point nine, so I used to haggle the dealer and he used to give me four wraps. And that, that was when a gram was a gram, you know, now they say sort of a ticket is a, is a ticket and it's sort of point four. Mm. You know, I used to buy a full gram, but I'd have one that I would go out and I'd share.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. if someone said to me, because I was always the one that had gear, they'd go, oh, you got a little live," And I said, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll put you one out. So I was the one who would put you out of line of gear, but that would be my one to share. I'd have another one in my pocket that no one knew about, (laughs) and I'd have another two at home for when I got home. So people didn't know to the extent in which I was becoming dependent on it. Mm -hmm. And very early in the night, I would go home, I would duck out and go home because I was too uncomfortable. I couldn't get on the same level that my mates were on. They was laughing and having a good time, but I was just uncomfortable. So I used to duck out and go home early. So from something that was a party drug, Mm. gradually started to become an isolating drug. Mm. The third part of my using, when I I say I break out into three parts, I become very isolated. I never bothered going out. I didn't want to be in people's company. I didn't like being around people. I just wanted to use on my own. But all the way through this, because I had work ethic, I think it allowed me to almost stay in denial mm. of my addiction for mm. quite a long time. Because if I got up for work in the morning, and if I had a couple of days clean time here and there, mm. I could tell myself that I was in control of it, mm. when really I wasn't. And when people say about you know the, the perception of a, an addict or an alcoholic, because I was going to work and getting a couple of days clean time, I still didn't think that I was an addict or an alcoholic. But my sofa in the end become my park bench mm. You know, all I would do is wow. go to work stay on my sofa mm. you know, the only good bit about getting on the gear in the end was the going and getting it mm. that was the only good bit that I enjoyed mm. that feeling of I'm going to get it but I knew what I was in for every single time you know, I'd get up in the morning only having a little bit of sleep telling myself why did I do it to myself why did I put myself through it I didn't enjoy the using. Mm. I've been sitting there all night, television on mute, thinking I can still hear it. Looking at the CCTV cameras on my phone, any little bit of noise would make me uncomfortable. I had this image that I wanted people to to see me as. So I'm getting so far detached from what I wanted, my ego and what my image was, and where I was actually at. Mm. You know, I used to even take my, my Fitbit, I had a Fitbit at the time, I used to even take that off when I was using. Because I didn't want it to destroy my stats. That's how in denial I was. Because I could look at my stats and think, "Yeah, I'm all right." Yeah. But where I know that I can feel my heart pumping out my chest, but my watch would have given away to me what was actually going on with my body. You know, I've tried so many different ways of of thinking my way out of this this illness. You know, because of the image that I wanted people to see me as, I thought to myself, "I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to do a marathon. That might help me." So I started exercising, and like it says in the book, we try so many different ways to, you know, whether it would be changing our using, changing our drinking, changing the, the type of drink. You know, for me, sometimes I try and put a little line out instead of having a big line the size of a slug. <laughs> but all I find is that as soon as I do that, I just go back there even quicker. Yeah. So i I'd done a marathon, um, and all through my marathon training, up, and it was because I wanted people to see me as this fit, healthy person, who works in sport. But all through my marathon training, my best thinking was, if I get as stoned as I can before I go out on a, on a run, I'm not gonna, be out, not gonna think about how far I've got to run. Mm. All I've got to do is just, with my numb, stoned head, lean forward and my legs would take me. <laughs> but then because I go out and I run at a good distance, I'd come back and I'd deserve a treat. So I'd still call it on when I got <laughs> home. And my cycle of getting up in the morning, why did I do it to myself, would be the same every single day. Mm. I'd done that marathon, and that was all right, and I used straight after it because i just run a marathon and I wanted to treat myself. But I ended up doing another one, and my training routine was exactly the same. Getting stoned, thinking it's gonna help me go and run a long distance, um, calling it on afterwards, because I deserve it. But the night before the marathon, I had the bright idea of getting a bit of gear and putting it in the cupboard, so I've got it there for when I finish the marathon. Whoa. And I'm sitting there in, in that irritable, restless, discontent stage. The obsession of the mind starts, starts going, I'm thinking about this gear in the cupboard, then I start telling myself that I'm not going to get asleep sleep straight away because I'm a bit anxious about the run tomorrow. So it will be a good idea to just have a little line. <laughs> that was about eight o'clock in the evening. Now sometimes what I used to do, if I was going out the next day, and I had to get the gear the night before, I'd wrap it up in insulating tape so I couldn't get to it as easy. So it would make it a little bit harder. Trying to make it easier for me to sit through that irritable restless discontent. It would never stay wrapped up. I'd unwrap it, put a bit out, and then wrap it up again, and come to come the next day, it's all gone. But anyway, I had this bright idea of just having a little one the night before the marathon. And um, four o'clock in the morning, I'm still sitting there, thinking to myself, why did I do this to myself? I've got to be up in two hours, and I've got to go and run 26 and a bit miles. Fortunately I, I went through it and I, through with it and i have done it and I didn't kill myself um, as a result of it by the strain that I put my body under. But like I say that that guilt and remorse every single day when I got up knowing that I've got a full day's work, why did I do it to myself? I'm not gonna do it tonight and I go to work get get to about two o'clock and up until then I've told myself I'm not gonna do it. But by then the tiredness has started to wear off. Because another thing I used to do is I used to drink a lot of energy drinks, I used to drink a lot of Red Bulls, trying to chase that high and trying to get rid of my tiredness mm-hmm. and to help get me through the day to the extent where I ended up having a brain scan with the amount of Red Bulls that I was drinking, mm-hmm. trying to chase that high. But come two o'clock, and it was literally like clockwork every day, as soon as that obsession mm-hmm. come on me, I knew I was going to use it at the end of the day and the only thing that could get me through the rest of my day at work was telling myself I'm going to pick up when mm-hmm. I finish work. Uh-huh. And when I finished work, I didn't have any any choice in it. You know, I was powerless at this stage. My addict would already make the phone call, but what I didn't know then, my God, conscious voice—it wasn't very loud, because I, my, you know, I'll come onto that in a minute. But you know, there was a, there was a small voice, a little whisper that said to me at the end of the day, "Don't do it. Go home. Just have an early night." Mm-hmm. But my addict would tell me that I'm the only one in the world not doing it that night, and I felt I was missing out. And I would go home, party for one, and when I walked indoors, I had two justifications to tell my wife. I've either had a good day at work or I've had a bad day at work, and the only difference would be the tone of my voice. I'd go in and I'd go, oh, I've had a great day at work today, so I've got a bit of gear. Or I'd go in and I'd go, oh, I had a shit day at work today, so I've got a bit of gear. Mm. And justify it by changing the tone of my voice, Mm. now poor me, or well done, I've had, I deserve it because I've had a good day, or you know, I deserve the treat because it's not been the best day at work. And that cycle was the same for such a long time. Now, I've heard many people say that we're the last people to see our addiction. Mm. And my sister recognised it in me a long long time ago, say 16 years ago, which is when I first had this seed of, of the 12-step fellowship sewn on me and she knew someone that was already in this program and they phoned me up. It was when I was on my way home from work and they phoned me up and we had an hour's conversation and he was 12-stepping me. Mm. He was telling me about his experience and I was, I was relating so much to it and he was talking to me about my using. And um, he convinced me to go to a meeting and this meeting was in West London. And I used to see it as like a Sunday night out I used to go over there because I knew I had a cocaine problem. Mm. I wanted to stop sniffing gear, but I couldn't. Mm. So I was prepared to give it a go. But like I say, they told me I was an alcoholic as well because they said, when you drink, do you sniff? I said, yes. And when you sniff, do you drink? I said, yes. How often do you sniff? Every day. (laughs) Well, you're an alcoholic then. Mm. So that's when I went back out there and had to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic by dry (laughs) sniffing for another few years. Until eventually, the, the drinking become a, as much of a problem as well, because they just went together like toast and butter. Mm-hmm. And then, I had another go at the rooms, but this time around I couldn't get the god word. You know, I couldn't. I, I wasn't prepared to give up puffing because I thought to myself that was that was keeping my my brain from going like a washing machine. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't prepared to go total abstinence. I didn't know the concept of it all. And I remember sharing in a meeting that night and I I used to, my ignorance used to pick religion apart Mm. to try and find a way to say, you know, I used to think I was so powerful, I've got to carve my way through life and I'm going to be the, I'm going to be what, who decides where my destination is. Mm. I'm not going to be led by anyone else, I'm my own person. And I remember sharing in a meeting and I used to go to a meeting in, um, and it was quite an affluent area where I used to travel to, to go to this meeting because I liked the shoes they wear. I liked the, you know, mm. they all had Gucci loafers and, and Armani <laughs> jeans. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't want that sort of image of an addict. So I went to meetings where they sort of, I knew they was going to be, be like that. And, you know, that wasn't all like that, but there was a lot of Gucci loafers and, Ar- and Armani jeans there. And I remember sharing in this meeting about how I was struggling with the concept of God. And I, I went home and I used to listen to a lot of Joe and Charlie thinking that they was going to help me and they did help me to a certain extent because they give me a a lot of understanding of it. You know, Where I couldn't read, I didn't like reading, I wasn't good at reading and I wasn't one to pick up the book and read the book. Mm. So I listened to a lot of Joe and Charlie and I picked out bits that I wanted to do. Mm. I knew I was powerless, I couldn't get the God situation, I knew I had to make amends to people. I had the serenity prayer tattooed on my back. So there's me, knowing I'm powerless, got the serenity prayer tattooed on my back, went out, started doing step nines, making amends to people, <laughs> getting told where to go, thinking, well, why aren't they getting it? You know, And it was me that wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. But when I did get a little bit of... of clean time So i I got a phone call sorry just going back there i got a phone call after that meeting that i shared about not getting the god situation and i got a phone call that night i was in my garage having a joint listening probably listening to a bit of joe and charlie thinking that i'm getting this and i got a phone call from this man and he said i heard you in the meeting you're struggling with the word god i said yeah i can't get it i can't get me around it and he told me what it was all about he explained to me it's a spiritual program. It's a God of your own understanding. Now, I love nature. I love the outdoors. And my, the, the starting point of a God of my own understanding was, you know, who brings the tide in, who takes the tide out? Who makes the grass grow? Yeah, I've got to cut the grass, but, but who makes the grass grow? Who, who makes the leaves fall off the trees in the autumn? And who puts them back on there in the spring? And who makes the sun shine? So that was my way of, of getting belief of a God of my own understanding but it never developed to the stage of having faith. Because for me, or I understand it, belief has got to come before faith. Now mm. I've gone to, from atheist to agnostic to then having belief, mm. but I didn't have any faith. Mm. Now, as a result of not wanting to commit to the program and just picking out bits, thinking that I can think my way out of it, because I've got a little bit of taste of recovery now and I can do this on my own. I'm still in that cycle of getting up every day, going to work. and thinking that I've got it under control. And the, the part where I did get it a little bit under control was just before I come in the rooms this time round. And I got my longest bit of clean time. But as I say, I've puffed all every day from the age of 16. And towards the end, when I did get a little bit of clean time, I started to thaw out from the drinking and from the, the sniffing it was the most broken that I had ever felt mm. because I was starting to sort of think to myself, you know, I was so uncomfortable inside. I Th- used to think to myself, you know, what is life all about? Is this a- Is this what life is like? Mm. I'm so uncomfortable. Life is like an uphill struggle. I had two cousins that took their own life as a result of this illness. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is life all about? It just seems like an uphill struggle. Mm. Every day was a challenge. And as much as I didn't sort of think about killing myself, I didn't, I I was just sort of waiting for the day to get old and die, Mm. because I didn't know how to live. And I diagnosed myself with depression, anxiety, social anxiety, and I'm doing all this self-help stuff, I'm reading books, not reading books, I'm listening to audio books, out of Win Friends and Influence People, trying to sort it out. And when I look back at that, out of Win Friends and Influence People, because I was so selfish and manipulating and controlling, which I now know of some of my defects of characters. I interpreted that book as how can I manipulate people? How can I get people to do what I want them yeah. to do? How can I be that actor who runs the show in a better way and still get <laughs> them to like me? So I tried all these self-help things, and, and I was just so uncomfortable with life, you know, and just just waiting to get old and die. Until in the end, I went to, to see a, a psychiatrist. Mm and I told him all about my past and you know, I thought that he might be able to give me a pill and fix me and make me feel better and then I can still puff and I can still I can live a happy life. But after telling him about my journey, he gave me the best advice I'd ever got. He said what well, I suggest you do, I suggest you go back to the meetings, get back into the 12 step programme and finish off what you started. So I... I went back to the meetings this time round, and like I said, I was so uncomfortable and so broken inside that I heard these, what was being said in these meetings, completely different to the first two times Mm -hmm. when I come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've lived many years uncomfortably and trying to battle my way through life and trying to work it out myself. But I heard something in these meetings that I I knew I wanted it, Mm -hmm. and that's why I committed to it. Like I said at the beginning, I printed off the readings, I wanted to engage in the meetings. it made me develop the the courage to be able to share back to then grow to the person that I am today that can say yes to service. Mm-hmm. And my life has completely changed today. You know, my sponsor said to me, you know, if you want a shortcut to recovery, go home and get your book out and go to page one one two and read the first three words. It's all in those first three words. So being an addict and wanting everything now, or yesterday, I've gone home, I've gone to page 112, looked at the first three words and it said, read this book. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a little nugget. That I now know that the answer for me and where I am today mm-hmm. lies in that book. Mm. And someone else said, to, said something to me that I picked up when I was coming this time around. They said, "You know, you've, imagine you've got a ball and chain around both legs. The ball and chain around your left leg is your drink and drugs. The ball and chain around your right leg is yourself. Now the first part of those steps, step one, two, and three, is gonna help you remove that obsession of the drink and drugs. But then once you've got rid of that ball and chain, you've still got the other ball and chain of yourself. The rest of it, step four through to 11, Mm. is gonna remove that ball and chain of yourself. Now I started thinking about that, and thinking, yeah, I can relate to that, because I love an analogy. Mm. And I thought, yeah, when I do that, and I get rid of that ball and chain, I get rid of that ball and chain, I'm gonna get a key. And then I'm at step 12, and I can start going around and unlocking other people's ball and chain, and help setting them free, and giving them the life that I've got today. But where I've realized this program gives me so much more than just getting rid of that obsession of drink and drugs, and how it's rebuilt me as a person. I like things that make me feel good. Mm. Drink and drugs made me feel good at the beginning, but then they stopped working. And I spent years trying to get that same feel good back mm. like I had at the beginning from drink and drugs. But this program has given me this. Mm. So why would I stop being involved in this program, in these 12 steps and in this fellowship and something that makes me feel as good as it does mm-hmm. today? You know, if I want to get fit, just buying a gym membership is not going to get me fit. Mm. I have to go to the gym and I have to work at it. If I go to the gym and work at it and I get to a level of fitness, I can't expect to maintain that level of fitness wow. without continuing to train. Yeah, wow. So if I want to get fit, I've got to buy a membership, I've got to go mm. to the gym, and I've got to keep training. Mm. When I get fit, I've got to keep doing it. This has brought me to a, a, a stage of almost spiritual fitness mm. and my mental fitness. Because all those things that I self-diagnose myself with, surprisingly <laughs> enough, they've gone. <laughs> so I now consider myself a lot more spiritually fit than I ever have been, mm. and I, and this program keeps giving me that. So, for me, if I want to maintain that, I've got to be consistent in what I do. I've got to continue to work hard at what I do. I've got to practice these twelve steps on a daily basis, mm. as it says. You know, practice these steps in all our affairs. Mm. You know, I have to apply these in everything that I do. Yeah. And if I keep doing what I do today, working on myself with my routine in the morning, fixing myself inside. I know what my defective characters are. Mm. If I'm in a day and I feel my defects rearing up, I recognise that. Mm. And as long as my defective characters don't rear up and come to the surface, then I'm being me. Mm. And today I quite like myself. So if I quite like myself, and I'm not acting out on my defective characters, I haven't got to worry about what other people think Mm, of me. Not everyone is gonna like me, but I haven't got to worry about that because I know that I'm not being someone who I am meant to be, mm. and I'm meant to be this person today, mm. and I look really like where I am. And it's all credit to this 12-step program, the fellowship, the network of people that I've got around me, and I do everything that was suggested. I got myself a sponsor early on this time around. I got myself a service commitment I went through the work you know i've been through the steps twice now i'm taking other people through and i just love giving back with it yeah. you know i like where i am today yeah. so if i like it and it makes me feel good being an addict why would i want to stop doing it and i think i'll leave it
0: <laughs> on, mate i'm so pleased that you came over and <clears throat> agreed to do this because i've long admired you in the rooms you know like whenever you you mentioned earlier about me b- being kind to you after you share, but that's just genuine because of the, the way that you were sharing. You know, it's powerful stuff. This is this is a beautiful, beautiful life that we've got today, but so much of what you said, that uh, like it brought up stuff for me, that the whole idea that cocaine's a classy drug. I remember being at Wickford Station and I'm, I'm banging on the cubicle because there's a, someone doing crack in there and I'm thinking, will this fucking cunt hurry up? Because I want to get in there and do my cocaine. Like I'm judging him. Um, those delusions and the powerlessness of it all, and, and and what you said as well that that I'm never going to do this again. How the fuck have I done this again? And and, and at some point in the day, my my that, that peculiar mental twist that the book talks about, my my thinking changes, and I think, mm, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be all right. And I could never understand the 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 idea of being allergic to drink or drugs. You know, I couldn't hear that. I'd come in the rooms and, you know, I, I suppose there's a lot to be said about being ready you know and, and when I my sponsor explains it like a like a frenzy inside of me if, it's, if there's a piranha tank in there I can't just put one in and go oh shit sorry change my mind it, it, I cannot control it you know I'm, I'm great this this morning it was um I'm grateful that I'm not nicking the car at 4 o'clock in the morning and driving 110 miles an hour because I cannot not have it I have to have it you know I've never I've never had to encounter something as powerful as, as addiction. But it, it wiped the floor of me. Absolutely wiped the floor of me and I was I was at a loss. I really was. Going through the process for you, is there a particular step that you jumped out at your or that you felt like you'd been Because it's beautiful and we all know it lit one leads into the to the next, but was there any a particular one that you felt the most growth or, or that changed things for you or? Um I suppose,
1: step one I did have a problem with, I knew I was powerless. Mm. You know, I came to believe from, from when I come in the second time round. But when it comes to to me handing my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him, mm. you know, I had to look up all these words. You know, when I do that on awakening reading, thy will be done. Mm. For me, going atheist agnostic to then having faith in the God of my own understanding, I'm thinking, what does this mean? Mm. So I had to look up these archaic words. Yeah. You know, thy being another word for your, will as I understand it, if I go to a solicitor and write write my will, I'm writing down my thinking. Mm -hmm. So will for me is another word for thinking. Mm -hmm. So if I'm handing my will and my life, my thinking and my life over to the care of God, Mm -hmm. I thought I was gonna lose my identity, but what identity did I have? (laughs) I didn't have an identity. All I had was an ego And a mask of how I wanted people to see me. Mm. So, step three, I remember, I remember sort of challenging it. uh, You know, and I used to think, you know, I've got two beautiful girls. What if someone disrespects them? Mm. You know, I'm going to have to call on this nasty part of my mind Mm. because I'm going to have to go and either make a phone call or I'm going to have to go and do something to sort someone out Mm. if they disrespect my girls because I've got to protect them. Mm. And when I got my head around that, and that was the biggest thing, you know, I need to be there to protect my girls. But if I'm the best version of me, Mm. I'm not gonna control my girls. I'm gonna guide them. Mm. And they're not gonna have to stand in the middle of me and my wife arguing. They're gonna know the difference between right and wrong. Mm. So hopefully they know the difference between right and wrong, and they can make their own choices in life. Mm. And I haven't got a, I can hand my will and my life over to the care of God. Mm. Because it makes me the person that I can be a role model to them. And if they've got a good role model, they're going to be able to know the difference between right and wrong, yeah. and they won't get in, involved in situations. So I found step three a little bit of a barrier. Mm. Step four, I didn't have a problem because I understood that that was going to relieve me of all the the things that I had done and all the things that I was holding on to. But step five challenged my sponsor with that when he said I've got to share it with another two people as well. Oh, did he do that? Yeah because <laughs> and I and I asked other people you know where does it say that and I was saying to him you know in them steps it that's says that's, that's on, on. Yeah, it's it says wild. in them steps you know um, share it with another person mm. Now I'd done my step four along with my step five at the same time with my, my sponsor but I then went away and it says in that book person or persons mm. and I know that he wasn't asking me to do anything that he hadn't done mm. and I had to share it with another man wow and a a lady. Wow! And when I shared with a lady, it was the most freeing thing, Mm -hmm. because she sort of comforted me in a way that made me feel so at ease that I really felt that I got it all out. Mm -hmm. And I had to do that, that was the the journey for me. Not everyone makes people do that, and not everyone does it that way. Mm -hmm. That's the way my sponsor went through it, and that was the way he wanted me to go through it. Today, I love living in, in 10 and 11. Yeah. You know, If I get something, if I get a resentment or something come up, I'm straight into 10, mm. jumps me back to four, I go through, I work out, what's it affected, my self-esteem, my pride, my personal relationship, what part has it affected? What's my part to play in it? What defect has it reared up? And then I ask it to be removed. Mm. Step 11, I live in every day, I do that every morning. Yeah. Work on my, sure my conscious contact with, with yeah. the God, my own understanding. So, I like living them all, mm. but I really love step twelve yeah. you know, I love step oh, I love yeah. step twelve yeah. um, i I love helping people you know i've I've got a service position that allows me to be on the front line with people that are not quite in in the meetings mm. yet and in involved in the 12 yeah. step, but they can go on the website and they can hit that live chat button yeah, that, and that. I can then be of service to them yeah, that and that. I can tell them from my experience how there is a better life out there. Mm. And you know what I do find very difficult, but it's something that I accept is how not everyone finds their way into a twelve-step program, because there's people that I communicate with that are brave enough to reach out via the website, mm. but are too fearful of going to a meeting. Yeah. So then we've got options where they can can have someone phone them and speak to them, someone yeah. from their area, you know where, where um, they've got the the ability to go on a Zoom meeting yeah. and keep their camera off oh, wow. and have the seed sown in them that way. Oh, so wow. we just try and sort of get people understanding the 12-step programme, yeah. the benefits, by telling them from our experience. And hopefully that's enough to get them into a meeting I and find right. a better
0: way of life. That's, that's interesting what you say, because I always try and speak to the people that come on because that fear of approaching that, most people walk up and down the street outside the meeting you know mm-hmm. fearful of going in there until someone might come out and grab hold of them And but what would you say to anyone that was in that position where they're thinking of they might be online or they might be listening to a podcast and they're thinking of going to a meeting but they just can't get over the fear of walking mm-hmm. over the threshold how was you greeted in the meetings let me ask that question i was greeted in the same way that that you know
1: everyone is with love and kindness yeah. You know, everyone made me feel so welcome. Um, You know, as as we all try and make a newcomer feel welcome. Mm -hmm. But if I see a newcomer come up to the meetings, you know, I'll ask him, you know, is this your first meeting? And, you know, I try and tell him a little bit about myself. um, And I try not to talk about myself too much outside of this. I try and take an interest in other people. But it's one opportunity where you can tell people about yourself or, or myself. For them to be able to understand that they're not in this alone yeah. and that i am the same as them yeah. and i always tell a newcomer you know I, I take the time to explain to them what they're going to experience in the meeting mm-hmm. so nothing is a surprise for them that so they yeah. don't have to share back yeah. they don't have to pick up a reading yeah. i know the fear that they're going to be going through from my fears that i've experienced yeah. in there and it's a big a big move for someone to come to a meeting mm-hmm. because i see people on the on the front line that haven't got the courage to go to a meeting, so I know how much courage it takes to go mm-hmm. to a meeting. So I just try and put them at ease, and I, and I talk them through the format of the meeting, I that. and about listening to the similarities, not the differences. Mm. You know, your story might not be the same as what you're gonna hear up the front, but you know, they may touch on powerlessness, the obsession, um, the lack of lack of choice, the lack of control, and just listen to see what what is being said, listen for those similarities tell them about at the end when we all stand around and, and do the serenity prayer. Mm. Um, and the only bit of interaction they're gonna have is going up and getting their chip, yeah. make sure I take their number.
0: Yeah.
1: And once I've got their number, I then take time out the next day to make sure they've got some of the tools that I've give, that I've been given. Wow. You know, i send them a link to the where to find, so they can go on to the a link direct to the website where they can use the drop downs and select the day, select mm. the area, um, and find a meeting locally, I tell them what meetings I go to, so if they felt a connection with me, yeah, they can come and meet me at a meeting, you know, it was t- said to me to, to do a minimum three meetings a week, mm. you know, I aim for five meetings a week yeah. because I love being there helping people, I love yeah. being part of them, I love seeing the people there, and yeah, so I just try and tell them how I've found the meetings and how it's changed changed my life, and. And, you know, I use the ball and chain one as well so that they don't sort of get to that little bit of clean time and then start thinking, I'm well, right. I'm all right.
0: Yeah, I did that so many times. I'd get a couple of weeks and I'd think, oh, do you know what? I've been making too big a deal out of this. This is, you know, maybe I'm not an addict. And yeah. then I'd go back out the door for another fucking three or four years, you know? Yeah. So i crawl back in and <clears throat> same people were sat there looking even better than they were the last time. But always loving me back, do you know? Like this... Probably a cliche to say that these meetings and rooms loved me before I could love myself, but mm. that's, that's true, that's always been true, you know. I can often <coughs> explain to people as well about, you know, about
1: we all are aware of that good devil and bad devil voice in our head. Mm. You know, I explain, explain to people about that bad devil, the one that tells you you shouldn't, you know, to do something. Yeah. That's your addict. Yeah. And your addict is going to try and strip you of everything you've got. It and give it a couple of days and it'll probably tell you that you don't need these meetings. Yeah. Yeah. But try and ignore that addict and just keep doing what the good devil in your head is telling you. You know, and if you think you don't need to go to a meeting, that's the time when you should go to a yeah. meeting because your addict is telling you that you don't need to go. I
0: still feel like that now. You know, I can. <clears throat> I still. do f- still do three meetings a week. I need them. I love them. To be honest, they're they're a little boost of energy and that connection from people and all the rest of it. But it's it's easy to slip if you're not careful. and think it's been a couple of weeks since I've been to a meeting, but then. These days, I can tell by whether I'm, you know, irritable, restless, and, or discontent. But in general, like, oh, mate, I, I feel so grateful to have what we've got, you know, and to be given what we've got. Because for the most part of life, I just used to think I need a fucking instruction book for this because I just don't get it. I don't understand it. It all seemed futile. Um, you know, like you said, just, just waiting for death almost like and and I had no enjoyment any happiness I had was fleeting as well. I could be getting the nicest massage in the world and I think this is gonna fucking end soon. You know, Mm -hmm. I just could not find any happiness and and I I understand the difference now today between happiness and contentment. Mm. you know my my contentment is not based on those external things that you're talking about I love what you said about your morning routine as well setting yourself for the day that's that's key for me as well like before I even get out of bed my head's on top of me oh mm. fuck it off Bob don't bother today or just fear i just could try and just try and construct some random fear it'll go for a checklist of my life again. that's alright leaving my that's alright oh look look he's a bit worried about this and I have to invite God in, and you know, you, you spoke about that as well, I had such a huge problem with that conception of a higher power, I'd, I'd come into the rooms I'd be crippled and broken and then they'd say, the God word, and I'd think oh fuck off, and I'd get them walk out, furious, furious, mm. angry man and our book tells us to seek where religious people are right you know, and I'd, I'd go past church and I'd think look at these sad cunts but the, but the truth is that they were displaying a degree of stability in, in their life that I could never have hoped for you know and, and it's not a religious program for me I've, I've had probably five or six different conceptions of my higher power over the time I've, I've been about this time around but I don't know what it is whether it's a psychological or spiritual process but giving my control over I see that, that, that phrase control freak and I used to bristle because I hated it because I was one I didn't know it you know but today being able to just give away that control you spoke about that like why leading by example with your kids you don't have to have that element of control do you because you've done the right thing yeah. what can you what, what can you do other than that what helped me a lot with getting with, with the sort of
1: evolution if you like of the god of my own understanding because mm-hmm. it's my my god is con- relationship is continuing to grow but what helped me grow what helped it grow a lot was someone sent me um a piece of literature on the God of Spinoza, right. and it was something that he used to, that Einstein used to read out when he was um, giving lectures at university, and it was it was um, the God of Spinoza, and it's worth googling yeah, will, the God of Spinoza, right. um, because it for me where my connection was in nature and outside, mm. you know, it, it tells you sort of, you know. If you can't see me in a sunrise, if you can't see me in the, in someone else's smile, you know, it, I love hiking, and that's one of the things that that this fellowship has given me. Yeah. You know, a network of people that love hiking as well, yeah. love like being in the outdoors. Yeah, so so yeah, we've done. Did. We must have done probably, you know, twenty peaks this year, wow. and some other challenges within within hiking. You know, and I look at them mountains and I think, you know, no one's got in a JCB and pushed them hills together and put <laughs> their rocks up there you know that's that's been created by a power greater than me and I enjoy that beauty Mm. you know and if I can't see God in the sunrise and someone's smile in the the waves on the beach Mm. you know they're all things for me that keep me connected Mm. and um, you know something else that I've got from this fellowship and this program as well and what helps me on a daily basis and I see it in some people, you know, when some people say yeah, I'm not feeling that great or I've, I've relapsed or done this, I went through th- the first stage of my step one, it was, it was understanding that triangle. Mm. You now the triangle being made up of service, unity and recovery yeah. encased in a circle. Mm. And the idea is for, for me to live a life of ease and comfort rather than a life of disease and discomfort, mm. I need to stay in the center of that triangle. Yeah. Well, how do I stay in the center of that triangle? I need to make sure that each three, each side, is solid. Mm. So, I've got my service commitments. Yeah. I do my recovery. I go to meetings. I do the book work, I take people through the work, and I've got a great unity mm. in this fellowship. Yeah. You know, after I've done my prayers and my meditation and my reading, I start reaching out to people, and that carries on throughout the day. So, as long as I keep them three sides of the triangle solid, mm. then I can stay in the centre of it. Mm. You know, It says on the beginning of the chapter 5, and I'm not a big book quoter, but this is something that really stood out to me. Very few people have failed if they've thoroughly followed our yeah, path. Yeah. You know, and that to me says, just do what, is, do what it says in the yeah. book. You yeah. know? And when people say about you know, they're struggling or they're relapsed, and in, in deeper conversation with them, you can often find that it's something that they've missed out. Yeah. You know, are you still praying? Well, no, I haven't had time to pray. Are you <laughs> meditating? Well, no, not really. I haven't really got time for that in the morning. Yeah. Are you going to meetings? So where is your, where is your recovery? Yeah. Well, I, I've only got time to do one meeting a week. Okay, you got, Now I've just got rid of my sponsor. Mm. You know, and, and when when that starts to happen and those sides of the triangle start to become fractured, mm. for me, that would put me in a dangerous yeah. place. That's More so that my defects of characters will start yeah. rearing up. Yeah. yeah. Because a drink and a drug is going to be the last thing yeah. for me. You know, I'll That's start, the end of the relapse. Yeah. yeah. My relapse will start when I start going indoors, walking through my front door, shutting the door behind me, and then just switching off. Yeah. I have to go in there, and it's, you know, I try and be as helpful as I can. You know, can I do anything to help? Yeah. You know, I will empty the dishwasher and I will do things like that. Yeah. Whereas before it would have been, well, you're working from home, you can do that in between yeah. in between your, your meetings, aren't yeah. your work meetings. So I try and be more helpful because if I start. Mm Relapsing, it will start to show that the people that I'm closest to, because they're the people that I can get away with it easiest. So I make sure that the people that I can get away with it Mm -hmm. are the people that I really keep my my uh, Mm -hmm. recovery at at the forefront, because they're the ones that have suffered the most, and they're the ones that will get it first. Yeah, that's interesting. I
0: love what you said that, that as well, because I used to I used to come into the meeting just as it was about to start listen to the chair and then quickly fuck off before anyone could get hold of me and then realise why it didn't work for me, you know, but like you said, that service recovery unity, unity, talk a little bit about that, because I always love to, because we were so alone, I was, I I can't speak for you, I was so alone, I thought I was insane, I thought I was losing my mind, I thought I was the only one that was doing all the weird shit that I would do when I got on it, and then I come in and and I meet people that, not had the same just have the same problem that I but they think like me on a daily basis and suddenly I've got people that I can trust and who understand me you know I, I never had that it was mm. always seemingly like the black sheep of the family or, or or the outcast you know and now suddenly I've got I'm surrounded by people that actually know how I feel and yeah. and, can, and can yeah resonate with me you know well unity is a big part for me you know like I said it's one of
1: the sides of that triangle mm. you know my, I have to set my phone on sleep mode um, because it was just be pinging all the time, you know. I have to have certain things that apps that can be activated uh, for work purposes. But you know, I wake up in the morning and I've got messages on there from people. You know, and I'll respond to their messages and I'll send out message messages to people. You know, and I might every now and again scroll through my phone at, at people with, you know, everyone in my phone who I've met through these this fellowship mm. has got the initials of the fellowship after it. <laughs> And if I haven't seen someone for a while, yeah. you know, I would never have sent a voice note. I would never have gone on the WhatsApp group before. No. You know, I would have sooner, even that of doing a chair, if I could have done it to everybody individually, that would have been fine. <laughs> but to do it to a group yeah. put that fear in me. Too many people to judge me. Yeah. You know, I can, I'm in WhatsApp groups and I can send out a, a message, you know, good morning everyone, hope you're having a lovely and blessed day. Yeah. Um, you know, At the end of the, the meeting, which is my home group, you know, I'm. Uh, I've got a piece of service there, so I read something at the end, tell people what's going on, mm. and I explain the importance of that triangle. You know, I, I announce any service positions that are available. Mm. So I would, I would say to people the importance of service because yeah. without people doing service, these meetings wouldn't go ahead. Mm. You know, and this is where I realise you know, you've got to give it away to keep it. Yeah. And <laughs> that that made sense this time round as well, but the unity side of it. You know, in the in my home group, I always announce at the end of it. You know, we've got a, a unity group for this yeah. meeting. Yeah. If anyone's not been to this meeting before or isn't on our unity group, yeah. come and give me your number afterwards. Let me put you on a unity group. Yeah, so they're in contact with everyone straight away. Yeah. So, and and in the morning that starts pinging away. Mm. You know, if there's anyone that's struggling, you know they've only got to put on there, not having a great day yeah. today. And that's it their phone will then be bombarded with people reaching out to them to make sure they're all right so yeah i've got people that i reach out to in the morning i'm involved in a in some whatsapp groups unity side of it i go i go out hiking with it i've been to weddings from people with a fellowship Mm -hmm. and it's it's lovely to be part of something and to not have that social anxiety and to to be able to free myself of all the things that I diagnose myself with. Isn't
0: that the yeah, truth, uh, though? I used to, yeah, 10 years I was depressed on antidepressants. These antidepressants don't work. <laughs> 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 I've been sniffing copious amounts of cocaine and like, I'd sniff yeah. the antidepressants when I ran out. as I just couldn't, yeah, oh, horrible, horrible. This is what the book talks about, doesn't it? When we straighten out spiritually, we straighten out physically and mentally as well. And yeah. I never understood that, you know that, that's what I was lacking that hole in the soul was what needed to be addressed you know yeah Um, I just want to thank you mate if I'm on this. I, I, I want to thank you for getting out of your comfort zone and coming to do this because you've just delivered another beautiful message uh, I want to thank you for being so kind and, and, and friendly in the meetings I want to say thank you for me being able to see your journey you know uh, it's so beautiful you see people come into these rooms and 6-12 and months later they're a completely different person you know and it's just absolutely beautiful so I'm really grateful that you came would you do us a favour and lead us out in the usual way with a serenity prayer been a pleasure thank you sir so thank you very much for asking
1: me to be of service uh, and be part of your podcast mm. uh, very honoured to be here but if you could Join with me in the serenity prayer, using the word God as you come to understand him. God, God, grant God me the serenity me.
0: to Just accept me. the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know ten. the difference. My Thank you very much, Stu. For anyone that might be listening, um, our fellowship has a set of traditions, which means that they are anonymous at the level of press. Uh, they're not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation institutions or any of that bollocks but that said if you like the sound of what we've been speaking about then you can go on to Google and uh, I'm sure it'll be at your fingertips but thank you for joining us and until the next time God bless. We may refer to the source by different names God, the higher power, the Holy Spirit or perhaps the cosmos the source, of the time that we